0: This is Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. We live in a world of an abundance of stuff, but a scarcity of meaning and purpose. On Philosophy, we explore how a philosophy of life can help us pursue meaningful endeavors and prepare for the future while enjoying today. Money is entangled in almost every aspect of modern life. So any serious inquiry for self-knowledge and personal development requires an exploration of the meaning of money. We'll learn from business leaders, entrepreneurs, philosophers, investors, historians, and others to help us think better, work better, invest better, build better, and live better. This show is brought to you by Vermilion Private Wealth. Thanks for being a part of this quest. Welcome to Philosophy, the intersection of meaning and money. I'm James Vermillion, and today's guest is Nick Kemp, a student and MythBuster on the widely misused Japanese word, ikigai. You may have come across the Venn diagram that went viral several years ago, one that according to Nick, doesn't begin to capture the richness of the word or concept. Nick is here to guide us through an exploration of the concept of ikigai, something Nick has been passionately pursuing for years. Nick is the founder of Ikigai Tribe, and author of the wonderful book, Ikigai Kan, Japanese Wisdom for a Fulfilling and Meaningful Life. What makes life feel worth living? We'll dive into that question. Enjoy. Hello, Nick.
1: Welcome to Philosophy. Good afternoon or good morning for me, James. Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure to connect with you. I'm really
0: excited today to dive into um a concept that is fun to pronounce <laughs> and uh and also one that I find really interesting and that is ikigai. Nice. It's a word I've seen pop up, you know, from time to time over the years. There's the famous Venn diagram which if you have not seen it, um you can you can uh, very easily find it by googling ikigai. Um but I would say that was maybe 10 or 15 years ago that started making its rounds. I've also seen it just in various, there, there are several books on the topic, including your new book, Ikigai Khan, which we will talk about as we go here. Um, but we have a way in the West of taking these concepts and these ideas, really watering them down, <laughs> making them into productivity hacks or career advice or um, you know some sort of get rich quick scheme or, or methodology. And I think we've done that a bit with Ikigai. So I'm excited to get... <laughs> more of a, a, a better cultural understanding from the Japanese perspective, which you have picked up throughout your time in Japan and with uh, the relationships that you formed with many Japanese people. So I'm excited. And I think a good place to start would be Ikigai. Uh, what is it? Can you describe it just a little bit before we get into the, to
1: the weeds? I certainly can. So it's helpful to look at the... How the words the word is formed so iki comes from the verb ikiru and guy is i guess it's a noun that means worth or value and you compound them together to mean the, the value of worth or living um, but a, a better definition and this is something i picked up from uh, japan's pioneering researcher who i like to call the mother of ikigai where we often hear these terms, the fathers of philosophy or the, the founding fathers of positive psychology, and for some reason women don't seem to get represented. And there are philosophers and psychologists out there who have contributed who are female. But, yeah, this woman in particular, Mirko Kamiya, wrote a book in the 1960s, and it's a seminal work, still referenced today, and she defined Ikigai as a source or object that makes you feel that life is worth living. And ikigai kan means that. So kan means feeling, and ikigai would be the object. So a good example might be a person, a relationship. So I might think of my son. So he would be my ikigai source, which is sort of kind of weird to say, but he's a source of ikigai. And, yeah, I have these emotions or feelings of love, connection sense of purpose as a parent hope for his future and pride in the young man that he's become so it's it's definitely something you feel rather than let's say achieve and what's interesting guy can be added to many other verbs and we'll, we'll probably get into this later so the irony is in japan it's a word they don't use often i've only heard it mentioned, I was asked the question, what's Mikey Guy, many years ago in 1998, but other than that, I can't really recall a vivid memory of being asked what Mikey Guy was or people talking about it, but behind it, as you'd know from my book, there's this incredible body of research from the 1960s onwards, and it's very relatable to positive psychology.
0: I was wondering about the word, and you, you kind of brought up the point uh, early on in the book that it's not a very common word in, in conversation. Do you think that's because it's just such an inherently understood word that there's really not often a need to say it? I was trying to to equate or come up with you know, an English word that I felt was maybe similar, and I, I really failed at that, but... <laughs> The closest I came, I was recently listening to Russ Roberts, who's um, the host of Econ Talk, um, which is a wonderful podcast. And he also has written several books, his most recent one being Wild Problems. He talks about uh, this idea of texture to life. And specifically, he used the example of children. And he said, you know, it's not happiness because, Mm. yes, a lot of times when you're around your, your kids, you're happy. But sometimes, you know, they're just a pain in the ass. You know, (laughs) they're challenging, you know, things they're, you know, they're difficult. Not every day you would describe as happy, but most parents wouldn't change that for the world. And so he calls that a texture to life. And that was kind of the closest kind of concept as I was thinking a little bit more about Ikigai. Um, But why do you think that is that it's not talked about uh, more or used more, I, I suppose, in everyday conversation in Japan?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, and I've reflected on this, and then I realised that the Japanese language has like hundreds of words that articulate a concept that either in the West we don't have a word for or we don't have this culture of deep appreciation to notice something to the point where we eventually have a word that defines it. So there's a word I Learned recently called Yugen, and it's this idea of a good example is you see a mountain, and you know that there could be a valley or there could be the other side to the mountain, and there's this idea of beauty to it, and you know it's there, but you don't know. you you can't see it. And so you have this feeling that there must be something behind it and there is this, I guess, this um, intrigue or interest in it. And we we don't have a word for that. I mean, so that's just fascinating. And other words like wabi-sabi or this appreciation for things that are incomplete or, um, I guess, imperfect in the context of nature, I mean, that's another misunderstood word. So Japanese have all these words. And they just grow up with them, you know. They they don't learn them at school. Um, and there's there's actually a word far more common than guy called Yadigai. and that's that essentially means something worth doing. Yarigai garu. and I remember hearing that all the time. Like that's that's something you'd hear almost every day if you're living in Japan. Mm-hmm. And so I thought about this. I thought, is there any word in English in Australia? That is culturally significant, unique to us, yet something we don't really say, but it's also quite subjective and would it, yeah, would be reasonably hard to define. And the only word I could come up with is mateship. So we have that expression, good aim, mate, but behind that we have this cultural identity or ideology of mateship where we think yeah, we should. It goes beyond friendship. It's sort of looking after your fellow man but having perhaps this laid backness But it also goes back to World War One, our contribution to that. So <laughs> I think we have one yeah. word, but Japanese have hundreds. And obviously they have that many because they have this unique culture and history. They were isolated for several hundred years. Um, and they, they draw in all these different cultures as, as well. So that's that's why, yeah, they they grow up with these words. But Ikigai is interesting because it's it's different to many other words. Because there is this body of research, and I've found so many research papers on this, and there are even sub theories in these papers that tie to different words. So it is fascinating, and there is some irony to it that in Japan Japan it's It's not really spoken about something they feel and yeah here in the west we've sort of watered it down as you say as to a venn diagram and it's gone viral so (laughs) (laughs) well you know
0: here we are in early january so it's you know we're recording this on january 11th probably half of all new year's resolutions have already failed miserably (laughs) um uh, uh, you know, I think something like 9% of people report successfully um, completing their New Year's resolution by the end of it. So not not a very high uh, percentage there. But, you know, it's, it's that time of New Year, new <laughs> you, um, you know, it, it, be the best version of yourself. And you talked about that in the book. And I think that's so interesting how you talked about that concept of the best you and kind of trying to reach some, some best version, however one would define best and how that's kind of incompatible with the concept of Ikigai, even though that's oftentimes what the Western version, if you will, um, maybe bastardization, I don't know what we want to <laughs> call it there, but even though it often goes in that direction. So, so if it, if it's not a destination or a, or an end goal or an end state, how would you, what would be the alternative way to kind of describe it?
1: This is an interesting question because even among Japanese researchers and authors, there are different opinions to, you know, what is Ikigai or how can it help your life? Um, so someone like Ken Moggi, who is a neuroscientist, he's a bit of a celebrity in Japan and he's written a, his own book, The Little Book of Ikigai, and he has this incredible knack for articulating these uh, Japanese concepts in English, so he's a a very good speaker. He says Ikigai is a spectrum of the things in your life that make you feel that life is worth living, and they can be anything from your morning cup of coffee, uh, your morning walk, to the pursuit of life-defining goals. And he, he kind of uses these terms that you, you first think are a bit strange. He'll say something like, oh, ikigai is proactive, meaning if you take action, if you do something, if you connect with people, if you exercise, you, you will feel ikigai. And then he'll say it's also robust, meaning if you have – I mean, he, has, he says he can easily identify 100 sources of ikigai throughout his day. So if you wake up and – You know, you spill your coffee and you you get a phone call from the boss and he's upset with you. You know, you might be a bit frustrated, but if you have all these other sources of Ikigai, it'll help you get through the day. And yeah, that's his take on Ikigai. And then someone like Gordon Matthews, who's an anthropologist, and he interviewed 52 Americans and 52 Japanese on Ikigai specifically, and he had to think about how do I frame this to Americans, and he did this in the 1990s, and it was something like, you know, what's your most important relationship, life goal, religious belief, um, or, you know, aspect of your work that, that makes life worth living. And he spent up to 10 hours interviewing 104 people individually and hand transcribed wow. all the all the conversations which I can't believe he did and he actually was able to do that for his a dissertation and so his his work for his dissertation was on ikigai and then he condensed it into this book and he really believes you can really only have one one source of ikigai and conceivably conceivably you could have several but there's probably at any one time in your life something that is your main ikigai, and it could be your work, maybe when you become, you know, a parent. And for me, I, I think I realised this when my son was two. I, was, I write about that this in the book. You suddenly realise, wow, I have this influence over this child, and this child now loves and sees me, and you have this new relationship. Um and so you quickly realise, oh, you're sort of my everything. So that, that's interesting. And I, I kind of think it's both. I think you can have this spectrum, but within it, th- there is probably one main source. And you know, for me, it might be the work I do at the moment. My son's sort of a teenager now, so he's got some independence. He's actually an adult now. He's 18. So, <laughs> But when he was, you know, three, four, five, six to... Twelve, he was everything and um, it was such a joy to just hold his hand and walk him to school or something like that. Um, so I guess the way we can think about using it in our life is to just appreciate the things you have and the relationships you have that make you feel that life is worth living and be aware of them. And that can start with sensory pleasure. Like I I go on these morning walks. I don't take my phone. I don't listen to anything. I live in a beautiful leafy suburb and, yeah, I'll just notice flowers or the cool breeze or the sunlight. Um, And then, yeah, we can have our tea or coffee. But doing something like this, talking to you, this is part of, you know, my ikigai, my work, but it's very meaningful. And I have these wonderful conversations. So that might be the way to approach it, to think what is meaningful, what gives me a sense of purpose, what gives me pleasure, and how can I maximize that and appreciate it?
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, Nick. And one thing I was really impressed by when reading your book was just how it was very obvious to me that you were very passionate and, and authentically interested in this concept and anytime I see someone laser focused on trying to understand something um I just think that's that's very impressive particularly when it's something from another culture that may not be as just inherently built built into us to understand you know from a young age so I think that really um, did shine through as I read the book so I think it would be worth, maybe you talking a little bit about how you got to the point of exploring so in-depthly one Japanese word and and what it means and what it means to you.
1: Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for reading my book. It's, it's one of those things. I, I probably know even people who do, who do buy the book, a lot of them might not get through it. So I really appreciate that you read it. The, the journey of how I became to write the book and then have my podcast and even a business out of this is yeah it's sort of fascinating and interesting to reflect on so when I first I mean I went to Japan in 1977 actually as a five-year-old so that was my first trip and I have some memory of that trip we had a, a night where my father was a physicist and so he was sharing his research sort of around the world and one stop was Tokyo and one night My father and my mother had to go out for dinner, so they got a a babysitter at the hotel and I have these flashes of memory of this wonderful Japanese lady who I think was teaching us origami and just being very playful. So, you know, maybe that planted a seed or I think it did plant a seed and then I went back to Japan as a a trainee chef in 95 and then came back to Melbourne and realised, oh, I don't want to do hospitality. You know, long hours and stress and so I thought oh, will I really want to go back to Japan and so I went back to Japan to teach and you know I was young and ambitious and I wanted to sort of show off my Japanese so I remember starting my first day after a couple of weeks training starting this job and on a lunch break I was speaking to a, a Japanese coworker and just walking along the street and she casually said you know what what's your ikigai in Japanese and I'm like Vicky guy, what's that? And she gave me this incredible definition that really just left me in awe. Like, you have one word that describes all that? I mean, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she sort of said it ties in your life purpose, but it also gives you you the energy to battle on through life. And so I remember thinking, oh, I've got to talk to her about this. So I remember going into work the next day and looking for her. And found out she'd been transferred to a new school, and I was so disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I just couldn't believe it, and I was like, oh, no. And I hadn't really connected with the other staff, so I couldn't just say, oh, (laughs) tell me about Ikigai. So I remember thinking, oh, well, um, and this was pre-internet, really, and sort of that was it. Life moved on. And then, yeah, 20 years later, I started seeing Ikigai, in the centre of a Venn diagram, and I remember the first time I saw it and thought, I remember that word, but then I thought, <laughs> this is very strange because Japanese would never define any word like that. So I thought, oh, it must be, must be some sort of Western interpretation and, you know, just brushed it off and f- forgot about it. Then I kept on seeing it, and then I remember showing my wife, I said, oh, babe, come over here, well, my wife's Japanese, <laughs> I said, "Look at this!" And she just looked at it, rolled her eyes, and walked off. <laughs> so I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then there were TED talks and the you know several books that came out, and I thought this is crazy. Almost everything online about ikigai is factually incorrect, or either romanticized. You know, it's the the secret to yeah. longevity. It's it's a word from Okinawa, and I thought this is crazy. And this sort of inner voice saying, well, you should do something about it. And I was like, well, I really don't know anything about it. Like all I know, it's, it's not this. So then another year passed. And then one day I saw it on the the world health organization as the uh, world health organization website as the Venn diagram. And that was kind of the final moment that was like, (laughs) all right, I'll do something about this. So I thought, what can I do? And I had, I have a background in, you know, web design and SEO and doing podcasts. So I knew it would be really easy for me to start something. I thought, well, the best thing would be to start a podcast and interview an English-speaking, you know, Japanese author or professor. So I thought I'll, I'll buy a domain and I was really lucky, I think, with my domain choice, I Tribe and then. I reached out to a, pref- a professor who's been in several articles and incredibly, he said yes to a podcast interview. Such a lovely guy. And his speaking ability is, can't really speak English. So I thought, wow, this guy is incredibly courageous. Because I've met Japanese mm-hmm. who can speak fluent English and they be very overly humble about it and that don't want to talk, you know, especially on um, a podcast or video. So, yeah, him coming on my podcast really kicked off the podcast and I thought I want to be respectful, faithful to this concept. And that was about two and a half years ago. And so with each interview with guests on Ikigai related concepts, it gave me this incredible insight and then... Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I found all these papers and all these sub theories of Ikigai and I have so many people to thank. And then about a year and a half ago, it kind of made sense for me to think about, you know, what's what's the next step? Do I write a book? And I'm, you know, I was the guy who had to do extra English in high school and just scraped through and my spell checker still struggles to make sense of some of these words I try. So, <laughs> so I had incredibly low self esteem. Um, but I thought, well, I really care about this subject. I've been incredibly privileged to interview all these people. Um, and yeah, so the idea of writing a book became a reality. Um, It it didn't go off to a good start. I I hired a book coach and wasted a lot of time and money. Oddly, this person was, yeah, very negative or very against some of the cultural aspects I was presenting. And she just like, I don't understand that Well, that doesn't make sense to me. So it was sort of doomed from the beginning. And then once that ended, I thought, right, you are invested. You are definitely going to write this book. And one of my community members, Caitlin Kite, is a technical editor. And she she actually said to me, she kind of triggered the whole idea of writing a book. She said to me, all this work you've done is almost like a, a dissertation. Like You should write a book. And if you do write a book, I'll edit it for you for free. <laughs> I was like, really? And then I thought, well, you know, I can't write a book. No. Nah. And so, yeah, I did. And <laughs> she did edit it for me. And that was a, a really kind of personal, deeply personal experience. Cause you're, you're writing all these ideas, all these thoughts, all these experiences and you're sharing it with one person and they're giving you feedback, suggestions, encouragement. And she did that with so much care. It was, it was amazing. So you're right. It's one word and it's changed my life. But it, it really represents almost like a unique form of psychology. There's philosophical elements. And it's sort of relatable to pedagogy like education. It can be used probably in education. And the journey continues, you know. I, I kind of feel I've only scratched the surface.
0: Yeah. Well, kudos to you for persevering through <laughs> the uh bit of the disastrous start there. Um I mean as someone who writes only or you know short form for the most part anyways you know a thousand to maybe 3000 words um I know how challenging <laughs> just just taking on something like that is so to so to take on the monumental task of trying to explain a concept that even Japanese uh speakers uh, you know and Japanese people have a hard time explaining themselves I think was I mean, that's, that's a huge challenge. And, um, so, so again, kudos for, for powering through, I will say I had a moment in the book where I felt like, you know what, maybe I am starting to understand this <laughs> better than I expected. And I was, again, I was trying to link some of these ideas, you know, language is such a funny thing. We, that's kind of the only way we ha- we have to try to convey things back and forth. So I was trying to make connections between some of the Japanese words and phrases and other concepts I've come across, you know, throughout my life. And one that I kept thinking, I was like, you know, this is very similar at times, uh, or at least elements of it to some of the concepts, um, about flow. Um, and flow is just a wonderful book, um, yeah. that was written by, uh, Mihaly Mihai, which I think I got that name right. Did. Um,
1: it's, that's how I know it to be.
0: Pronounced so, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually easier to say than it looks when you when you when you see it written out. But it's a wonderful book. Um, and I was thinking throughout your book, you know, Ikigai has some elements of flow. So I felt very validated um, when you had a section in the book uh, about its relationship to flow. And obviously, I think Ikigai is broader in, in a lot of ways than just a flow state or whatever. Um, but I do think there were some parts that might be similar. So can you speak a little bit about the relationship between the two? I think that will be, you know, interesting to a lot of people, especially those familiar with, with
1: flow. Yeah, this, I mean, this is a whole chapter. So, and the, the, it's interesting how people perceive flow because there's, I guess there are different types of flow and mihai Csikszentmihalyi's definition of flow is where you you have a certain skill set. And there's that challenge to be met. And that it's it's almost like you're, I almost say that you're almost yeah, you're on that level of pushing the boundary of growth because you are being challenged and you do have the skills to meet it. And you get so absorbed you lose track of time. And so I, I kind of relate that state, the flow state, as almost the feeling of Ikigai, or it could be as ikigai source. Mm-hmm. You could say, Oh look. You know, my work's not really my ikigai. But when I'm, when I reach that state of flow in my work, whatever it is, that's when I feel ikigai. Um, so that that's yeah. that's how we could understand the flow state is feeling ikigai. It could be one source, and then there's this social flow in Japan. And yeah, as I was writing the book, I you sort of realise you have all these experiences and you realise, oh, I do know a lot of stuff and how, how Japanese do things. And they, they have this ability to be in the moment, be present and do things with care in general. So if you go to Japan, you'll just see flow all around you people getting on and off trains, walking down footpaths. Even if you went to a convenience store, there is this sense of structure, system that uh, facilitates flow and there are set expressions that um, enable this kind of social flow. But then you have Shokunin, these incredible craftspeople, and they can reach... It's almost like a the flow state in the extreme with this idea of kodowari, where you pay great attention to the fine details of one's work. And we all know that Japan produces incredible products, you know, modern products, but then they have these fine arts. Um, and, you know, when I think of flow, I often think of my father-in-law, who is a master potter, and he makes uh, tea ceremony bowls and and many other things. And he has a small factory next to his house, and I I lived with him the year before we came back to Melbourne to sort of save money. And I would just waltz into the factory thinking, oh, what are you doing? What are you up to? But then I thought, oh, I should really document this. And, yeah, he would just sit cross-legged. He's probably 70 at this stage where most people be retired and he could just churn out um, bowl after bowl on a pottery wheel and each was unique, but they, they all had some sort of consistency to them. Mm. And I thought there's just no way I could sit down in, in the hot summer or cold winter and be so focused to do that for hours and hours on end every day. So the Japanese ability to be in the moment and be present but also go laser-focused to reach this flow state where, yeah, nothing distracts them and then they end up making these products and they never kind of – I think they're satisfied but they always – they're always thinking there's something else to learn, something else I can add to this. And they, they never have a near enough is good enough attitude. They have this, yeah, this idea of kodowari, how can I improve this to, to satisfy the customer? Or how can I be earnest and honest to my work? And that's that's another example of flow. Um, I mean, there's so many examples of flow in <laughs> Japan.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I when I was, you know, reading about your father in law, you know, two things came to mind, and both of these things aren't necessarily Japanese origins, but the seriousness in the the um, striving to do everything properly is so evident. I really enjoy jazz music. Oh, nice and there are japanese jazz musicians that the um i mean what they create rivals anything else in in the world and japan's not you know historically certainly a, a, a jazz hub but the seriousness and the skill that they develop when when a japanese artist you know decides that that's what they want to create is just truly impressive. And another one that comes to mind that I've had uh, interactions with at various points is Japanese whiskey. I was going to say,
1: yeah, you'd know that with whiskey.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, the care and the diligence and even the environment and the cleanliness and um, the procedures, it's, you know, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So it's no surprise when you start to understand and like reading this, I was just things started making sense like you know what it, no wonder Japanese products and things are just known worldwide to be of a high quality because tradesmen take what they're doing very seriously beyond just earning a buck or or whatever the case may be it's not a not just a living for them it's it's an act of doing something well yeah and I, I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, that, That's something I miss um, about Japan and that, that word chanto suru, to do things properly, it's, I kind of feel guilty saying this, but when I go to Japan and then come back to Australia, I kind of go through this, I guess, about a two-week or a month period of frustration when I'm getting served because in Australia it's so laid back and casual, you buying groceries at the supermarket and someone's on their phone and, oh, they go, oh, hi, and then they start chatting to their coworkers, they're serving you. <laughs> and, you know, it'll be 6 p.m. in the evening and they'll say, oh, have a nice day. And they're so unaware and so not focused. They don't even know what time it is. Yeah. And that happens, you know, it happens yeah. almost every time I go somewhere. It's It's like work is secondary. To me, having a chat to my coworker or looking at my phone, or saw some guy yesterday. He had his, he had a a key on a a chain, a work key on a chain, and he was sitting in the customer, uh, standing in the customer service area, leaning on the wall, swinging it. (laughs) And I just wanted to go up to him and say, "Mate, you got no idea how bad this looks." Like, um, (laughs) but yeah, you kind of got to accept and think. Some people works just yeah, it's just making money, and they don't really care how well they do it. <laughs> and it's it's yeah. easy to yeah. be critical, but yeah, it's just that's really frustrating. And you see this incredible contrast where you know you go to a convenience store and you, you feel like you're treated to five star service. You know, you're spoken to. You're, you're in some convenience stores, they have a little tray. They'll they'll give you. Well, I'll have a tray on top of the, the cash register and you put your money on it. And before they take the money, they'll process the transaction and give you a change first. Then they'll take the money and put it in the till. And so there are these little things that they do where you think, wow, at first you're thinking, this is strange. Why are they giving me a little tray for the money? But then you think, so, you, you know, it doesn't fall on the floor and it, it's safe. And then, then they're saying, we're, we're going to give you a change first before we put the money in the till. It's just, um it's just amazing. So, yeah. Well,
0: that's a great transition into another point that I wanted to talk a little bit about. And that's kind of this idea of smallness. And I mean, those, you know, that's a very small thing. That's a... Very mundane, very common transaction mm. uh, that most people wouldn't think a whole lot about. And here in the West, I think America is probably uh, at the top of the, this list. It's always about thinking grand, you know. It's about aiming high, doing important things, changing the world. Um, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, being the best <laughs> version of yourself. It's it's all of these big ideas, big concepts, big aspirations, and goals and that's you know uh, again i'm not i'm not knocking that i certainly have you know ambitions of my own in various parts of my life but i think there's something beautiful and really um important about smallness and in, in taking care in even the smallest of things and i think that's kind of goes to what you were just talking about there but maybe we can talk about that for just a minute because i think it's really quite profound and and can make a difference just on a on a day to day to when. You know, if you don't feel like you're, what you're doing is meaningful, maybe you can find meaning in just doing whatever it is well, no matter how small it
1: is. And I think that's, that's important. Yeah. Japanese are really good at understanding that. And they, this is why they place this emphasis on doing things properly, especially these small things, but they also tend to appreciate the small things in life. And I remember First time I I went out with some Japanese co-workers when I was um, this restaurant trainee, and they're saying, "Oh, we, we're going to take you out to ramen," and I, I didn't know what ramen was back then. Essentially, a, bo- a bowl of noo- noodles in soup, and you know, we kind of went to this dodgy-looking ramen yeah, and I thought, "Oh, what's this?" But <laughs> <a> been <bit, laughs> uncertain about this and. Yeah, we we queued up for what seemed like hours, and we sat down, and that's all we ordered—nothing else, no beer, no, no no gyoza, no. And the look of glee on these guys' faces—I was like, these guys are weird. Like, why why are they so happy over a sort of a bowl of cheap, dirty noodles? And. Yeah, I mean, eating ramen was like this new experience for me, and now I, I love it. But, yeah, they were so in the moment and so happy with just this probably back then 400 you know, $4 bowl of um, 400 yen, $4, I guess, a bowl of ramen. And then another occasion I remember <laughs> going to a cafe and you'd get this small sliver of cheesecake, just sort of one – fifth of maybe what you'd get in America. <laughs> and I'd be thinking, oh, straight away, that's, that's not big enough, you know. <laughs> and I'd be eating it thinking, well, I, I should probably get a second slice. <laughs> Whereas, you know, my, I think my date at the time was really enjoying every mouthful and really appreciating the, the taste, the texture. And, yeah, it ties into this idea of doing things properly but appreciating the small. And I was even on one, I had a, a podcast um, guest who is, a, a, was a, is and was a researcher and, and she spent a year and a bit in Japan at a community cafe observing this, this elderly group of people. She, she was, um, she's an anthropologist and she was studying ageing in Japan and she remembered, she was kind of also like part of the staff there and the staff were like, right, when you serve someone tea, um, and they would sort of, I think they were serving Western tea, so you know, Earl Grey, so it would have, have the handle and the saucer and the teaspoon. And they were like, when you place the tea saucer or tea on the table, make sure the teaspoon is on the right side, and that you serve it on their right side so they can easily access the teaspoon. <laughs> so so these small things are all designed to serve a purpose. And we just wouldn't think about that, you know. You just plonk it down, make a noise, and the coffee spills a little bit over the saucer and the stuff will go, oh sorry, and walk off, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> um
0: uh, they'll say sorry if you're lucky, maybe. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: so that yeah, that dedication to small but the appreciation of small is really that's really changed my life. Um and it yeah, I can almost think, oh, the, the naive, overly ambitious teenager in me would have rolled my eyes and dismissed this. And now it's something I greatly appreciate. <laughs> So maybe I've matured a little bit. I love that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I would say so. I would say so. I want to talk about failure just a touch. Um, One of my favorite um, Japanese proverbs, not that I know that many of them. So let's, let's be front up front there, but uh, fall down seven times, stand up eight. It's so simple. It's so short. (laughs) And uh, I, I, I just, I just love it. Um, I I don't have any tattoos, (laughs) but if I were to get one. It, that might be somehow incorporated. Um, but I think it's a lovely, a lovely saying on failing. Have you noticed a difference between Japanese culture and Western culture when it comes to failure, as far as how it's viewed, how one looks at it themselves, how one looks at it when they're seeing or, or see somebody else fail.
1: This is an interesting question because I've never, I've never thought about it in the context of let's focus on how failure is perceived in Japan because I'd often think about you know how they're very resilient and they persevere and they have all these challenges they have environmental disasters and you, you never hear them blaming God or nature or and how they. Know, if they have a, a flood or a typhoon or an earthquake, you yeah. don't hear stories of looting or um, all the things we often hear out there, outside of Japan. So they're, they're very resilient people, and uh, in the, let's say the sporting arena, um, one thing you might notice is when Japan Japanese athletes. I mean, there are exceptions to this. I think some of the fighting sports, uh, you know, people overly celebrate and they'll be screaming and jumping around. But often in other sports, you, you never see Japanese overly celebrate. They they win, they, they bow, um, they remain quiet. And, you know, they do this because they realise, one, their opponent's lost and so they're very aware of the feelings of, Disappointment and frustration, and they know they can always be better or improve, and that uh, you know they're not, they're not the best; they've just happened to have won this particular fight. So I think on on failure, Japanese are, are very good at accepting, you know, this the true nature of things. Of course, they'll they'll go through disappointment, but. They might just realise, well, I didn't do enough. And they might go through similar emotions of, you know, I've let, I've let someone down, I've let my coach down. But I think they, they move on quickly and they go with this idea, I will now try to improve and do my best. So Japanese are focused on trying to do their best as opposed to thinking that they can be the best. And so I think with failure, yeah, I would go back to this idea of resilience, and and they have this word or this expression gambaru mas. and it's it's the it's literally the only word you'll hear Japanese say at sporting events. So spectators scream this out and they say "gambate, gambate," like to the people they're supporting, and athletes in interviews will say, oh, I'll do my best. So it, there is this focus of doing this their best but realising there is this possibility that I, I won't win, um, and they seem to talk less about these things. They just don't talk about winning or, or failure as much as, maybe in in the States. and I've seen some documentaries on, like, university wrestlers or college wrestlers in the States, and you've got this guy who's incredibly good, and he's – he loses. He loses the the state championship, and it's like his whole family has been wiped out. Like, he's so – disappointed and depressed like it's it's beyond the level of what you would expect and you you're not sure is this so deeply tied to his ego like it's almost like he'll never recover like that's it my life is is over <laughs> yeah so that that kind of yeah i've never seen that in japan like okay lost but they're they're respectful and they hide their disappointment at least from public view
0: Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, in many cases, and at a younger and younger age, kids are wrapping up their entire identities in, you know, whether it's a specific sport or whether it's academics or, you know, some other domain of life. And a lot of times, especially kids who are especially talented at a young age, they don't experience failure for a good bit of their life as far as losing, maybe not failure, but losing. And so when they do, it's this like shock to the system. It's like they've died almost. And uh, I think it's rather sad, especially when you see it in, in kids that are, that are really, really young and have a life of endless possibilities in front of them, feel like they've disappointed themselves and their, their families and their fans and university and, or whatever um, all over a a sporting event. But (laughs) Um, you know, it, 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 and I, I, I sense a lot of it too, with the, um, you know, at least my limited experience with Japanese culture is there's just a little bit more humility mm. there. They were never, they, you know, most I'm imagining, and you, you can probably provide some better insight here, but I imagine most like really good Japanese athletes don't think they're as good as the let's say American equivalent who is has the same skill set. Um
1: exactly. Maybe. Yeah. I don't no, know. No, no. I mean I think one example of that and Americans would know is Ichiro Suzuki, who I mm-hmm. don't really know a lot about baseball, but he, he wrote significant records. And yeah. I don't think you <laughs> see him screaming and running around and ripping off his shirt or um And he's, um, and in Japan, he's, he seems very accessible. Um, he lives a relatively kind of humble life. Um, and when he talks, he talks about failure. He says, you have to understand I've failed more times than succeeded in baseball. Um, and yeah, he doesn't kind of present this rock star status of an athlete, um, and so, yeah, Japanese are very aware of. Yeah, they are humble, and that they're very aware that um, it's it's only through the help of many other people that they succeeded. And it's it's more about the journey. And this is very cliche, but it really is more about the journey and the progress. And I mean, this kind of goes to the the idea of doll, the way. And you, he does this um, suffix added to many crafts or arts or martial arts. So um, judo, the gentle way, um, kendo, the way of the sword, yaido, oh, yaido drawing the sword, um, and then chado, the way of tea, and um, even shinto is the way of the gods. So and do represents a set of practices and commitment and the way or the path suggesting there, there is never an end and the, the, the idea is to commit yourself to these practices and do your best to refine them and continually learn. So even if you win or lose, it doesn't mean the journey's ended. Um, and... Yeah, this is why Japanese have these lifelong pursuits. Um, And this is probably why my father-in-law at 82 is still making pottery. Wow. Um, And he's, yeah, he's aging really well. (laughs) So, (laughs) but going back to that um, proverb or it's nanakorobi yaoki, seven Four down seven, rise eight. It's really interesting because when I first learned that, I thought that doesn't make sense because you fall down once and then you get up once. And I thought, shouldn't it be four down seven, get up seven? Because <laughs> I'd often you know, look at things really closely. <laughs> but then I realized it's like it's striving and then failing and then you get up. So it's, or, you kind of you start with one anyway, perhaps because you've given, you've been given life, or you've been given help, and so that there's always this deeper meaning behind a, a Japanese proverb. That's funny. I'd never
0: even thought about that. <laughs> so, I'm like, oh yeah, so <laughs> interesting.
1: So yeah, it's it's fascinating, and this is why I tell people, and this is typical of the West, like I'll just tell me what it is, like, you know, what, what's hikigaya, what's wabi-sabi, like, in a sentence thinking through that they can understand, and I'm, I'm really cautious saying, look, you need to have a mindset of having long and, you know, many long discussions on this with many people, and if you're trying, you know, the, the problem is you're trying to understand it with a definition, and that's just not going to work yeah. And even the, uh, yesterday someone, a friend of mine sort of said, oh, it sounds like Japanese don't even understand their own language or culture. They, they have such a hard time explaining it. And I was like, well, no, that's not the case. It's, they struggle to explain it because they're, they're very vague concepts and the, the things they grow up with and you learn from life experience and you're expecting the perfect definition. So you're being yeah. ignorant and um, sort of making this accusation that, oh, but they can't explain things well. And they're explaining it in your native language. And, you know, have you taken the time to, to learn Japanese or spend time in Japan? So this is why, um, yeah, often Japanese will have trouble explaining these concepts because you, know, you have someone say, hey, what's ikigai, what's wabi-sabi, <laughs> want this kind of perfect definition And this is why Ikigai became a Venn diagram because it seemed like a a really inspiring and, um, you know, amazing definition. And, you know, the Venn diagram is certainly inspiring. It's just not Japanese in origin, that's all. Um, And Ikigai is deeper and broader and it is kind of hard to fully understand. And I'd probably say now after three years of almost full-time study that I've got a good handle on it, but I don't know everything about it. And, yeah, other words I know in Japanese, so I'd be hesitant now to explain it. I'd probably always say, look, I don't understand it fully, but it involves these ideas of impermanence and change and blah, blah, blah. Um, the irony is that often the Westerners who know very little about a Japanese concept, almost have this desire to to share it as if they do know it. And that's what I think happened with the Venn diagram um, because it, it's the purpose Venn diagram and it didn't go viral as the purpose Venn diagram. Um, but it did go viral when we, when someone merged it with guy.
0: <laughs> right. Right. You know, I think Nick, if you, and there are some feelings that are just hard to describe in in any language, I mean, if you ask most people to describe something like love, I mean, how many songs, books, and stuff are written, written on the topic of love? If it was that easy, we would have. I mean, love, I think, is similar. It's this very broad thing. There are different types of love. There are different um, feelings associated with love. There are ups and downs. There are, you know, it's it's a very complicated matter, and. We we are so desperate to explain things that <laughs> I think sometimes we we break them down quite too far into where the the meaning is actually lost in the definition. But um, I also think it's worth noting too, um, because it, it, you know for those listening, they might think, well, they're just romanticizing everything about um, Japanese culture. And I think we have touched on a lot of the really wonderful and beautiful aspects of Japanese culture, mm-hmm. but. I do want to point out uh, in your book, you also went into pretty um, pretty good detail on some of the challenges yeah. um, and negative results uh, of, of Japanese culture. So I don't want people to think you're just out here propping up Japanese culture and making it seem like it's it's a culture that exists without its own problems and its own challenges and things like that. So I think that's just worth saying in, in case it was coming across that way.
1: Yeah, that's that's this just- Briefly touch on that because that is important, and I wanted to make sure I I touched on that in the book. There is a a lack of ikigai in Japan, a serious lack of ikigai in Japan, and they have these unique problems that seem to start there and then, unfortunately, they're spreading. So one is this idea of hikikomori, these social um, extreme social withdrawal where you have teenage, usually boys, from the, you know, from the 70s now who've spent their entire life, 30 years of their life, in their bedroom at their parents' house and they, they have no no job, they don't participate in society and there's at least 2 million, 2 million people doing this. Um, lonely deaths, um, loneliness, um, incredibly high youth suicide. So, yeah, it's not like... Every yeah, it's, There is this belief that all Japanese can easily identify their ikigai and it's why they live so long. That is a, a Western romanticization. And, you know, some of my Japanese friends can't answer it. They go, oh, I don't know. I probably don't really have one. Um, so, yeah, I, I thank you for that because I don't want to paint this uh, pretty picture that everything's wonderful in Japan. They certainly have their own challenges and a lack of ikigai is one of them
0: that That's true of every every culture. But I think it's important to or at least useful, however you want to describe it, to look at the things that various cultures do well, whether it's on an individual level or on more of a societal level. And um, if there are things that you can apply to your own life or your own community or whatever, um then I think there's value there. So that's why I, I find this so interesting. Um, I love finding commonalities with different things I find interesting, and you talked about the true nature of things,
1: mm. which the word is arugama, yeah, arugamama. So, aru means to exist, mama means as is, and gar is just a subject marker, yeah. Marita
0: therapy, which you talked a little mm. bit about in the book, part of that. Is based on this idea that nothing is either positive or ne- negative. That external stimul- stimulus creates pleasant or unpleasant emotions mm. that we can learn to live with. And it, as soon as I read <laughs> that, it was like I, I immediately thought up um, Epictetus. Yeah, and yeah. he he has that the famous quote: "Men are not disturbed by things, but by the views of uh, they take on those things." And I thought they're not exactly the same, yeah. in those two concepts, because there there are a few differences, but I think there is at least some common thread there. And I just love finding those little like spark moments where I'm like, that's so interesting, you know, two quite different cultures, two totally different time periods, yeah. coming to a <laughs> somewhat similar conclusion there.
1: It's it's interesting you mentioned that because my editor mentioned, oh, would, this really relates to stoicism. Do you want to mention that? And I reflected on that and thought, oh it is, it's definitely the very close. But if I mention I was kinda of worried if I just mentioned Stoicism, it would create that, oh, okay, it's 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 the same as Stoicism. And I, I didn't want to create that impression. But yeah, you're definitely right there parallels. Um and yeah, Japanese are I guess they're really stoic actually they're probably too stoic and they have this problem of not asking for help and they have sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier that in australia we have so many services for depression we have we have a lot of education a lot of advertising we have days for men you know is you made okay kind of day and it's okay to ask for help japan they're they're decades behind in terms of Government-sponsored mm-hmm. programs or non-profit programs to help people with depression or loneliness. Um, yeah, because they have this belief that asking for help causes trouble, and you just got to grit, grit and bear it. And um, it kind of be, I guess that's kind of a negative aspect, maybe of these concepts that are probably misunderstood because. Some people might think, "Oh, I've got to be stoic, so I can't ask for help. I just got to persevere." And that's probably not really what we're talking about. But this idea of arugamama, I and I think the best definition is understanding the true nature of things, because acceptance is still a sort of a cognition. You're you're looking at something, something and think, "Okay, well, I'll accept it." Whereas if something is just, "This is the way it is," it 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 reigns. It, it shines um bad things happen <laughs> you know? yeah. um yeah, it's unpleasant, I don't like it, but I can live with it, and then I can move on i can I can action something to move on, and then eventually, yeah, you forget about it, um yeah, so that uh, that probably has a more appealing tone because stoicism almost sounds. I guess if you don't really start reading about it, a little bit intimidating or hard. Whereas Arugamama, True Nature Things, it's like, ah, it's, it's a bit more passive, um, a more more appealing, I guess. I mean, at least to me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: just in the very beginning of, of your book, that was one of the first things kind of talking to you, you talking about the misconceptions, if you will, or misapplications of Ikigai. I through studying stoicism have I feel the same way that a lot of the concepts have been misinterpreted, misapplied. There's now a whole uh, contingent of people that somehow have turned stoicism into like a way to build brands and businesses, Uh and I'm just like, it just it really (laughs) you know irks me in that in that sense because that's you know has nothing to do with it. But, anyways, I you know I I do think there are some similarities. I think it, you were right not to include it um, in the book because a I think it's a fun connection for people to make mm. on their own if if they think it's there. Uh, but also, I think ikigai stands uh, on its own and doesn't necessarily need to be compared to a more common Western idea. So that's my two cents. Um, Thank you. Yeah. That- I'd like to transition just a bit to the to the closing questions that I that I'd like to ask you. But I did love this quote from Gordon Matthews oh, yeah. um, that was in the call to action part of the of the book there at the end. The key to Ikigai is what it, what makes life seem worth it. It's when you feel, damn, it's good to be
1: alive. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good summary. It is. I remember he said that on – he was my second guest on my podcast and – he actually has a voice very similar to the the science teacher or the scientist on The Simpsons. So it's this kind of <laughs> high pitched, a little bit high pitched, animated voice. He's so animated and he's so passionate. And when he said that, oh, I was like, "Man, that, that damn!" It's when you feel, "Damn, it's good, the way he said." It, it's when you feel, "Damn, it's good to be alive." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought, "Wow." So that yeah, that was always going to be a quote and. Yeah, that's the feeling. It's this feeling of zest, but zest in your relationships and, and and zest in your hobbies and your work and um but not overly ambitious. Um So yeah, Gordon, that quote's really sums it up well. It's a good one. <laughs> and zest, I think that's a good uh,
0: a a good word um as well for describing geeky guy. Um but there are two questions I like to ask. Um and we'll start with the, we'll start with the first one here. What does wealth mean to you, Nick?
1: Yeah, that that's an interesting questions because I think we'd immediately relate to to money, but we we can have, you know, wealth for me in relationships. Last night, actually, I went out to dinner with, um, actually, it was my best school friend's mother and. I've actually I haven't seen my my school friend for years, but I've always maintained this uh, relationship with this you know this lady who's become a a very good friend over the years. And she comes to Melbourne every Christmas or every New Year to catch up with friends, and we've maintained this friendship. And then there were other friends there, and you know a, a gay couple who've really looked after me and my brother after my. My mother died, and they were they've been a part of my life since I was ten so yeah, I was always fortunate to to i had my mother was yeah a very good mentor for me in in the way she lived her life. She had friends from different cultures, you know gay friends, and I, I grew up thinking, oh okay, all of this is just kind of normal stuff and so they're in their late seventies early eighties. And I was just reflecting on, wow, you know, here I am with these dear friends who've done so much for me. So I kind of have this this wealth of friendship. And, yeah, I, I managed to give a copy of the book to this friend and wrote her a bit of a dedication. And she was almost brought to tears by what I wrote. You know? so, and I thought, wow, you have this intimacy with people and it's so it's so meaningful. So I think that kind of wealth, this, this intimacy and relationships could be one way to understand it. I think financially, I think we all have this relationship with with money and I think we struggle with it when we're first earning it and we, we might fear it, we might overvalue it. But I think in terms of uh, financial wealth, it's, it's probably this level you get to where you're unconcerned about money, and you, you have enough, and you, you manage it well, where it, it's not stressful. And it's, I used to think, oh, money's a resource, but it's just a a means of transacting uh, value. And then, of course, you can have a wealth of knowledge, um, which I'd probably think about in, in my journey of researching Ikigai, but also... I didn't realize I had this wealth of knowledge on Japanese culture, and i I know all these things that most people don't simply because I lived in Japan um, so we all have wealth, whether it's friendship, knowledge, hopefully love um, hopefully <laughs> financial <laughs> so it's yeah hopefully it's an abundance of something that's positive and something you. You don't fear, and I think, ironically, the one we relate the most to the concept of wealth, money, is the one that kind of causes the most uh, fear or stress. But we have all these other different types of wealth that we should value just as much as, or probably far more than money. Yeah,
0: <laughs> wealth might be as hard to define as Eki yeah, Guy. Yeah. That might that might be your next book. <laughs> what is wealth?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh no, that's lovely. And the final question. If you could send out a text message <laughs> and ping every phone in the world um with a message, what would you say?
1: Yeah, I, I read this before taking a walk this morning because I thought that's an interesting question. I need to give this some thought. And then I thought, I know what I'm gonna say. So it is use your your unique imagination, to create something new. And this comes from going back to the mother of Ikigai, um, Miiko Kamiya. It's essentially her definition of self-actualization, that self-actualizing is the joy of creating something. And we all have unique life experience, unique knowledge, unique perspective. And unique imagination. And if we create something new, whether it's a new dish, a poem, a song, an essay, a new product, a book, doesn't have to be grand. It can be something small, something medium, or something big. It becomes an emblem of who you are, a representation. So, yeah, I would say use your unique imagination to create something new that you can share with your family, your friends or or the world.
0: Wonderful. I love it. (laughs) Well, Nick, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Ikigai Khan. And uh, feel free to throw in any
1: parting words there. Awesome. Thank you so much for this opportunity to have a conversation and I guess share my my book with the world. Um, So, you can find me at two websites, but I'm probably going to merge them into one now. Um, so ikigaitribe.com is my main website. I've got my podcast and all my articles there. And then ikigai khan, so dot com is where you can um, find more information about the book, and it's available only on Amazon, so so self-published. And, yeah, it's been a real joy to chat with you. This is, I think, the first podcast I've done for the year. So it's been really, really enjoyable. And yeah, it's amazing how we can just meet people and have a meaningful conversation with someone we we don't know. And by the end of it, we we're almost thinking, oh, we're, we're friends now. So I feel like I've made a new friend today in you, James. So thank you so much for reading my book and having me on your podcast.
0: No, it's been lovely, Nick. And I won't embarrass myself with doing a, uh, an Australian, uh, accented mate, but, um, it, it, I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, I think you have an awful lot to share in in general, but, but also on Japanese culture and what people might, uh, be able to take away from it, uh, and maybe implement, use, uh, in some way, shape or form to improve their own, their own life. So thank you so much for sharing and, uh, Thanks for, for grueling and battling and fighting and scratching and clawing your way uh, to write the book.
1: Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And hopefully one day we'll meet in person and drink some of your bourbon. So.
0: <laughs> I'm always willing and ready to to share bourbon with with all comers. So.
1: That might be one of your... Thanks, Nick. That might be one of your guy sources.
0: <laughs> it, it, a lot of people would probably say it is, unfortunately. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Thanks. I hope you found my discussion with Nick insightful. Now that you have a more authentic understanding of Ikigai, I hope you'll think about your own sources of Ikigai. Make sure that you're subscribed to or following Philosophy so you're notified when new episodes are dropped. Thanks for listening.